1722, Bohemian and Moravian brethren established a little settlement, a little Christian community in Hernhut, Germany. The land was donated by the wealthy Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. It was an experimental community of sorts, and it was forged in the fires of persecution. This community became known for its pietism, but it became famous for its missionary zeal. In 1732, so this is just 10 years after they established the community, they sent their first two missionaries out to St. Thomas and to the West Indies. By 1760, now that's only 28 years after starting their missions work, they had launched 226 missionaries into foreign lands, and they had baptized 3,000 new converts. And here's what a day in the life of that little community looked like. This is from Christian History Magazine. Hernhut's elders watched diligently over the souls in their care. Each week, the leaders of various choirs met with the elders to discuss their particular members. Now, these choirs were like our community groups. And uh, they, they were organized by age, by sex, and by marital status. And these choirs would meet nearly every day for fellowship, confession, and prayer. Nearly every day. And the choir leaders would keep the elders informed of the spiritual growth of each member. The unmarried men lived in the single brethren's house. Unmarried women were in the single sister's house. And beginning at 4 o'clock in the summer and 5 o'clock in the winter, the sleeping town was awakened with the watchman's song. The clock is at 5. Five virgins will be lost and five will be welcomed at the marriage. Then everyone would assemble in the great hall for morning prayers and singing. At six o'clock, the watchman cried, the clock is six, and from the watch I'm free, and everyone may his own watchman be. And after a simple meal uh, at home or at a boarding house, the day's work began. Leading industries were spinning wool, linen, weaving, carpentry, pottery, as well as framing and farming and food preparation. At the same time, some were always occupied with study in preparation for missionary service. The day closed as it began with songs and prayer. Saturday was for congregational prayer and for communicating news from the mission fields or for celebrating the Lord's Supper. Sunday offered a full round of worship with early morning prayers, meetings of the choirs, morning worship at the church, an afternoon service for visitors, and an evening service of singing and prayer. In 1738, John Wesley visited this happy little place, as he called it, and he was so impressed that he wrote this in his journal, I would gladly have spent my life here. Oh, when shall this Christianity cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? And such was a day in the life of that little community at Hernhut, a powerful missionary community. I mention the Moravians because of similarities with the Christian community in the New Testament, including what we see in this letter to Philemon. Their community was a radical, new creation kind of community. Think of Acts 2. 
It's a community where believers are intimately engaged in, spiritu- in the spiritual lives of their fellow believers, where they're praying for one another, when they're suffering with one another, laboring alongside one another for the sake of the gospel, and seeking the Lord's blessing of grace upon one another. And this is the final sermon in our series on Paul's letter to Philemon. In a sentence, this letter is about forgiveness and reconciliation among brothers. And if I'm allowed a second sentence, it's about grace and peace. Paul is writing to his friend Philemon, and he's appealing to him to welcome back his runaway slave, Onesimus, who has become a believer. We're on the last three verses of this letter. This is Paul's closing greeting. As he signs off, Paul sends along greetings from fellow believers who are with him in Rome. And Paul does this in eight of his 13 letters in the New Testament. Paul then ends the letter with a benediction. Here's what I propose from this closing greeting. Christians were made for community. And maybe that's an overused word, but Christians were made for community. United with Christ, believers are new creations and therefore have new relations. That is, as new creations in Christ, believers are born again and adopted into new relationships with God and with fellow believers. And these relationships are the foundation for genuine Christian community. Let me break down what I mean by new creations and by new relations, and then we'll take a look at the community that Paul represents or presents to us in this letter. And I realized that I titled this sermon, New Creation Relations, and as I was reviewing it this morning, I realized that I will certainly get tongue-tied. New relation, crea- new creation relations, and uh, I just, just forgive me right now. I'm going to, um, I'm going to get tongue-tied trying to get this out. So, let me break down new creations and new relations. I'm using the term new creation or new birth to describe the radical heart-level change that God worked within you and that enabled you to put your faith in Christ. Your new birth, as J.I. Packer says, emphasizes two facts. First, it is decisive. The new you has forever ceased to be, you, the new you has forever ceased to be the man or woman that you were. Your old life is over and your new life has begun. You're a new creature in Christ, buried with him, out of reach of condemnation and raised with Him into a new life of righteousness. Second, your new birth is due to the free and to us mysterious exercise of divine power. Infants do not induce or cooperate in their procreation, and no more can you who are dead in your trespasses and sins prompt the quickening, that's the making alive, operations of God's Spirit within you. Your new birth changes your disposition from lawless, godless, self-seeking into one of trust and love, of repentance, and of loving compliance with God's law. It enlightens your blinded mind to discern spiritual realities, and it liberates and energizes your enslaved will for free obedience to God. That's what it means to be a new creation in Christ. Now, as new creations. I'm saying that you have new relations. You are a new family. I pointed this out a few weeks ago, 
Paul uses the language of new relations and family from top to bottom in this letter. Verse 1, Timothy, he says, is our brother. Verse 2, Abphia is our sister. Verse 3, and this is key, God is our father. If you want to understand new relations, understand that your relationship with God now is that He is your Father. And if God is your Father, and He's my Father, that makes me your brother. When God reconciles you to Himself by the blood of Christ, He receives you as sons and daughters. You receive the spirit of adoption. God is our Father. Verses 7 and 20, Paul calls Philemon his brother. In verse 10, Paul calls Onesimus his child. And he says he became his spiritual father in prison. And in verse 16, Paul calls Onesimus a beloved brother both to Philemon and to himself. And so that's why I say that as new creations, you have new relations. And with new relations come new privileges and responsibilities. You get a taste of those new privileges and responsibilities in the dozens, and I mean dozens, of one another's in the New Testament. I think there's about 48 of them or more. New relation one another's range from greeting one another with a holy kiss. Please don't try that with me. (laughs) To loving one another, confessing your sins to one another, and being at peace with one another. So now, what what does this letter to Philemon say about that? What does genuine Christian community, new creatures living in new relations, look like from this letter? There are at least six answers, and let me start with two that we've already touched on in previous messages. One, new creations living in new relations are invested in one another's lives. Now, invested might not be the right word, and I wrestled, and I looked at thesauruses, and I used uh, chat AI. I did everything I could to figure out a better word for this, but I think invested is the best that I can do. What I mean by it is that believers are involved in, they are intertwined with, and they have a mutual interest in each other. This goes far beyond the cliche of doing life together. This is far deeper than that. The advancement of the gospel and the glory of God is at stake in our relationships with one another. So new creations care deeply about one another. They care deeply about their brothers and sisters, and they care deeply about their church body. And Paul models this for us. It's the reason Paul wrote this letter. He's deeply invested in the life of his brother Philemon, in the life of his brother Onesimus, and in the life of that little church that meets at Philemon's house. Why else would Paul interfere in this seemingly private matter between a slave master and his slave? This way of thinking is just foreign to us today. In fact, I, I think we believe that it's a virtue to stay out of each other's business, don't we? But that's not what you have been called to, and that's not how you live out your new relations as new creations. You have been called and gifted to care for one another, and you can't use your gifts to care well for one another unless you know what care your brothers and sisters need. And that involves being invested in their lives. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul expresses his concern for the unity 
in the church in Corinth. He tells them that the function of every member is indispensable. And God put this, God put this body together and He wants each body part to fulfill its function. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. And why? Paul gives two reasons. The first is negative and the second is positive. Negatively, that there may be no division in the body. Positively, that the members may have the same care for one another. As a new creation body part, God gave you gifts that are indispensable to this body. You're called and gifted by God to care for one another. You're called to care, but you're also called to exhort one another, to exhort your brothers and sisters to do what they ought to do. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, Paul models this for us in this letter as he exalts Philemon to forgive and reconcile with Onesimus. You are called to care, you are called to exhort, and you are also called to bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And you cannot do that unless you are involved in the lives of those new relations that are all around you. You won't know what they're burdened with, and so you cannot bear their burdens. And of course, the list could go on. You're called to confess your sins to one another. That's serious involvement in each other's lives to confess your sins to each other. That's the kind the Moravians engaged in almost every day in their little choirs. You're called to fellowship with one another. And of course, the capstone, you are called to love one another. And we could give examples all morning, but caring, bearing, confessing, and loving is a good start. The point is that doing those things require investing in one another. Number two, New creations living in new relations pray for one another. And Paul models this as we saw in verses 4 through 7. He encourages Philemon with a prayer report, telling him he remembers him often in his prayers, thanking God for specific things and asking God for specific things on his behalf. Specific praying like Paul requires being invested in each other's lives in real community. How else will you know how to pray for your brothers and sisters if you're not involved in their lives? Praying for one another is all over the New Testament, but James is an interesting reference. He applies it to physical healing. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As an aside, Paul mentions prayer in one other place in this letter. It's in verse 22. Paul tells Philemon this, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. And listen to the way he words this. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. I skipped over that last week because we were short on time. But look at the way Paul says that. He's hoping to be released from prison and visit. That is, he wants to be graciously given to Philemon. It's gracious because it's God who will make this happen if it does. But he says that it's through your prayers. Paul is acknowledging that God works through the prayers of his people, but his hope rests in God. 
See, Paul's worldview shines through in, in little phrases like that. He acknowledges secondary causes, prayer, but not at the expense of the primary cause, God's will. We should start thinking and speaking that way as well. Our hope rests in God, yet we know that He works through the prayers of His people. The point here is that new creations pray for those with whom they are in new relation. That brings us to this morning's text, verses 23 through 25. Let's read it. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Paul's closing greeting is a short lineup of new creation relations that reflect genuine Christian community of believers. Paul sends along greetings from one fellow prisoner and from four fellow workers, and so we only have time to touch on them briefly. He begins with this man, Epaphras, and Paul might be singling him out because he has a special relationship with the church in Colossae. Epaphras may have planted it. We know that from Colossians 1. At least we know that he was active in sharing the gospel with them. Epaphras is only named in two other, two other times in the New Testament, both by Paul and both in the letter to Colossians. Here's what we know about this man from those short clips. Epaphras is a Gentile believer. He's from Colossae. To Paul, he is a beloved servant and a faithful minister of Christ. He is a servant of Christ, and he's also a model of point number two. This man prays specific prayers for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at the closing of Colossians. Paul says that Epaphras greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, not just generally, but specifically that you might stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. He knows and is invested in his brothers and sisters, and he knows them well enough to know exactly how to pray for them. And we also know that Epaphras was a hard worker for the gospel, not only for the Colossians, but also in the nearby cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Lastly, if you compare Paul's list of those who send greetings to the Colossians to this list in Philemon, you'll notice a difference in the way Paul describes Epaphras. In Colossians, he's a servant of Christ. Here, Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. We don't know what happened, but the fact that he's in prison might explain why Epaphras isn't delivering these letters and why Paul sends Tychicus instead. The Tychicus isn't even named in Philemon, and the assumption is that Onesimus will deliver this letter himself to his master. Paul then uses a really curious phrase. He says that Epaphras is a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. And Bible scholar G.K. Beale gives what I think is the best explanation for that little phrase attached to this imprisonment. He says that while Paul and Epaphras are both physically in prison, spiritually they are simultaneously also in a different dimension. They are in Christ Jesus, which changes their perspective from possible pessimism to optimism. That's a wonderful insight and useful to all who are in Christ. In your suffering, you are simultaneously in a different dimension. You are in Christ, which is a truth that's bursting with hope in comparison to your current circumstances. 
The point here is that Epaphras is suffering with Paul, literally suffering. That's what new creations living in new relationships do. They suffer with one another. You see this all over the New Testament. Here's Paul to the Corinthians. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And Paul to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And again, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, your suffering might be literal, like Epaphras in prison with Paul, but that isn't the kind of suffering that's widespread in our country, at least not yet. More often, though, your suffering will be suffering with one another as you come alongside a brother or sister who's suffering. That's what compassion means. It means to suffer with, to have compassion. It's being at her side at 2 a.m. when she's vomiting from her chemotherapy. It's weeping through the night with a brother who just lost a friend in a car accident. And it is the whole community group crying with a member whose husband just left. That kind of community happens when new creations live in new relations, when they suffer with one another and comfort one another with real hope in Christ. So you're invested, you pray, you suffer. And number four, you labor alongside one another, your fellow workers. This is the term Paul uses for those who are in gospel ministry with him. He uses it at the beginning of the letter to describe Philemon. He calls Philemon our beloved fellow worker. Philemon was laboring with Paul in the work of the gospel. In the closing greeting, Paul puts four other models before us, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. And we'll come back to Mark. He holds, he holds a special place in this closing greeting. But I want to say a quick word about these other three fellow workers. Aristarchus is that precious man from Macedonia. He makes his first appearance in the New Testament by getting dragged by an angry crowd into the theater in Ephesus. Aristarchus labored alongside on, on his return trip, on his third missionary journey. He traveled with him from Greece to Jerusalem And he also accompanied Paul under guard to Rome, surviving a shipwreck with him. Paul lists him as a fellow worker, and he was certainly that, but but clearly he was also a model of suffering for the gospel and suffering with his brother Paul. Again, if you compare Paul's list at the end of Colossians with this list, you'll see that Aristarchus is not only a fellow worker, but he's a fellow prisoner. Like Epaphras, we don't know what happened, if, any, if anything, um, but this man is also in prison with Paul in Rome. And according to church tradition, this fellow worker and fellow sufferer was put to death by the emperor Nero. That's fellow worker Aristarchus. Demas is an interesting one. He shows up here, he shows up in Paul's list at the end of Colossians, and he shows up in one other place in the New Testament. In our text, Paul simply calls him a fellow worker. But Colossians adds nothing to that, so we know precious little about this man, but he is well known for a different reason. 
the original readers of this letter, by that I mean Philemon and the others, would know, would know this man as a fellow believer who was working with Paul. But that would change by the end of Paul's life. Paul makes a brief mention of him in 2 Timothy. This is the very end of Paul's life. He was in prison and he was awaiting his execution. And he writes these words to Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And that's all we know. Demas deserted the mission because he was in love with this present world. Later readers of this letter, knowing the story of Demas, would take the mention of his name here as a warning, a warning that some in our community are not true members of our community. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And that's the sad story of fellow worker Demas. Luke, though, is probably the best known of these fellow workers. He's a Gentile believer. Paul calls him the beloved physician in the list in Colossians. And of course, Luke is best known as being the author of the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts, which is part two to the gospel. This beloved doctor labored alongside Paul during a portion of his second and third missionary journeys, and he joined Paul on his trip under guard to Rome, which means he was in the same shipwreck as Aristarchus. And those are the three of Paul's fellow workers for the gospel, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. The point is simply this. New creations are consumed with one thing, the thing that made them new creations in Christ, the gospel of the glory of God. And so they live in these new relations with fellow new creations, and they share that common aim and labor together for the gospel. It wasn't just that they worked together. They worked together for the gospel. And so this is going to be really awkward, but I encourage you to look around the room right now. Just quickly look around. I know, don't, don't lock eyes too long because that's really awkward. Who are your fellow workers? Who are your fellow workers for the gospel? We're a community, right? Where are our fellow workers? Who have we suffered with? We're a community. You're interested in, you pray for, you suffer with, you labor alongside. And point number five, you forgive and reconcile with one another. Of course, that's the point of this letter. Paul is mediating forgiveness and reconciliation among brothers. But the mention of Mark at the end of this letter may well be a lesson for Philemon and for the others as they consider this Onesimus ordeal. Mark is known as John Mark. John is his Jewish name and Mark is his Roman name. And he's the son of a woman named Mary. And what we know of her is that she let the church in Jerusalem meet in her house. He's also the cousin of Barnabas. We know that from the Colossians list in Colossians 4. Paul lists him here as a fellow worker, and that's true. He worked with Paul in his first missionary journey. However, Paul refused to take Mark with him on his second mission. And this story is in Acts chapter 15. 
Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there was a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. So Mark wasn't always a good fellow worker. The fact that he abandoned the mission and didn't go with them to the work caused a rupture in this relationship. The disagreement was sharp, the New Testament says, and they ended up parting ways. Now, what does that call for among new creations with new relations? All the things we've learned about in this study of Philemon. Repentance, confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Unfortunately, we have none of the details. We don't know how it happened, but it's clear from this morning's text that Paul and John Mark had reconciled because Paul now calls him his fellow worker. So when Paul mentions Mark and relays his greeting from Rome to Philemon and the others, it must have had an impact. Paul himself was not above forgiveness and reconciliation. John MacArthur makes that that point. The story of the once severed but now mended relationship between Paul and Mark would have been well known to the believers at Colossae. Listing Mark's name here would serve to remind Philemon that Paul himself had worked through the issues of forgiveness because that's what new creations do. They forgive and they reconcile with one another. That's what this letter has been about. Now, for our sixth and final point, let's look at verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You're invested in, you pray for, you suffer with, you labor alongside, you forgive and reconcile. And number six, you seek the Lord's blessing of grace upon one another. This verse is a benediction, a pronouncement of or a prayer for God's favor upon a people. It's a blessing. It's the way we close each one of our gatherings with a benediction. Without changing the meaning, you can simply add the word may. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And Paul uses this kind of grace benediction in every one of his letters in the New Testament, all 13. Beale reminds us that the word grace here is not a superficial, polite term, but carries with it theological freight. That's not a perfunctory farewell, guys. Paul never writes about the grace of God without a sense of deep theological substance. And the closing greetings of each of these letters are no exception. Remember the definition of grace that we learned a few weeks ago. This grace that Paul is praying for is God's goodness overflowing in empowering love to the ill-deserving. That's important. But first, for whom is Paul seeking this grace? I ask that question because it's not immediately clear from the text, at least not in modern English versions. Paul switches here from singular to plural. He was addressing Philemon with those greetings. Now he's addressing all the recipients of the letter, Philemon, his family, and the church. Look at verse 23. Paul says, Epaphras sends greetings to you. 
The you there is singular. You'd never know that in today's English. You would see it, though, if you were using the King James Version. You'd see that old but very helpful word, thee. There salute thee, Epaphras, which is just a wonderful translation, but it does give you a little different picture of what Epaphras was doing. Um, he probably wasn't standing at attention saluting. This was actually the way that you said greet. But the word thee shows you that it's singular. Nowadays, we use you for one person. We use you for more than one person, unless you're from down south, and then you can say y'all. So, Epaphras sends his greetings to you, singular, that is to Philemon. Then in verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your, that's a plural, your spirit, with y'all's spirit. It is the spirit of each of them, the spirit that each member has. Beale explains why. Paul returns to addressing the whole congregation with the plural you thereby reminding Philemon again that what Paul has written to him throughout the letter has been heard by all the church at Colossae, which intensifies his sense of accountability to what Paul has been telling him. Notice, though, that this grace is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Puritan Matthew Poole said, observe, and he's talking about this verse, observe, all grace to us is from Christ. He purchased and he bestows it. Of his fullness we all receive, and grace upon grace. He's quoting John 1.16. And he fills all in all. He's quoting Ephesians chapter 1. And he bestows grace upon your spirit because the soul or spirit is the immediate seat of grace. From the soul, it, all the influences of the, the soul and, the, and what's been pressed on the spirit influences the whole man and flows out in gracious and holy actings. That's what new creations seek in each of their new relations. They seek the grace of Christ to be with the spirit of their brothers and sisters. Why? Because situations like the Onesimus ordeal requires the blood-bought grace of Christ. Christ-like forgiveness and reconciliation requires grace. That's how Paul started this letter in verse 3, and that's how he ends it here with this benediction. It was in and through the work of Christ on the cross that God's goodness overflowed in empowering love to you, the ill-deserving. You weren't merely undeserving. You were ill-deserving. It wasn't that you merely failed to earn eternal life. Your condition, born in sin, choosing to sin, and dead in your sins, left you deserving of eternal punishment. But the grace of God has appeared in Christ Jesus, bringing salvation for all people. That happened at the cross. For God so loved the world. Kids, you all know this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him that is, whoever trusts in Him, whoever puts their faith in Him, whoever receives Him, relies upon Him, embraces Him as their greatest treasure, should not perish but have eternal life. And those who trust in Christ are in Christ. 
And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's goodness overflows to you in empowering love. And that gracious, blood-bought, empowering love gave life to you. You became a new creation in Christ, and it's that same gracious, empowering love that abounds to you still, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound to every good work. That's the grace you need to forgive and to reconcile and to live out these new relations. That's the grace that you need to live in genuine Christian community. That's the grace you need to invest your life in one another. That's the grace you need to pray for one another and to suffer with one another and to labor alongside one another for the gospel of the glory of God. And of course, it's the grace you need to forgive and reconcile. Therefore, if it's grace that you need to live this, in this kind of community, then by all means, tap into that grace. The Word of God is a means of grace. It is a channel through which God communicates His faith-granting, life-sustaining grace to you. Soak in the Word. Listen or take heed as it's preached and taught and read. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Delight in it. Eat the Word and digest it well. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are also a means of grace. They're channels through which God communicates His life-sustaining grace to you. If you're a believer, get baptized and then join weekly with all your new relations in eating the bread and drinking the wine in remembrance of how that grace was purchased. And pray. Pray for grace. And pray for the Lord's blessing of grace upon one another. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, this uh, kind of community seems uh, unreal. Father, we don't live this way. Forgive us. Father, I pray that you would pour out your grace upon Living Water Church and I pray that we would engage in this type of community. Father, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your glory, Father, I pray that you would awaken us to our need for this. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts so that we desire it. And Father, I pray that Living Water Church would flourish as a result of engaging in this type of community. Father, thank you for this little letter to Philemon. Father, you've been so gracious to us by preserving it for the past 2,000 years so that we could soak in the riches that are there. Thank you. All glory to you and to your son, Jesus. Amen.